0: In your service handouts, you have a sermon outline. Okay? Now, if you could take that out as well. And it's especially important today as we look through this passage. I'm going to explain why. Um, I've printed the text on the left-hand side uh, of your sermon outline, but it doesn't follow what the ESV says. There's a reason for that, uh, which is in verses 4 to 10, uh, the ESV has made a, uh, uh, a translation choice every time you translate the Bible, you're really making an interpretation. right? You have to make decisions how you're going to translate. And the ESV has has said that uh, it should be translated as keep on singing, uh, keep on sinning, uh, persisting in sin, practicing sin. um, It's possible, uh, but it's not the only way of interpreting the text. So I've reproduced it. Uh, and left out that that particular uh, interpretation. Hopefully, as we go through the sermon, you'll understand why I've done that. Okay. All right. Then uh, I'll pray as we begin uh, to look at God's word together. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we've been going through the letter of John, Uh, John has really got two major questions uh, that he wants to ask us. What is God like? And what does it mean to have fellowship with him? What is God like? And what does it mean to have fellowship with him? These are very important questions. And they've been answered in a variety of ways. So, for example, we, we live in a majority Muslim country and If you're a Muslim, how you know God is you know him in submission to the revelation according to Muhammad and the Quran, how you have fellowship with him is in your obedience to the five pillars and living in conformity to that. Uh, Perhaps if you are Buddhist, then uh, knowing God, well, God is a a different phenomenon in Buddhism, but uh, your practice of having relationship with him is through meditation and kind of transcending your reality. Uh, Perhaps it's secular humanism. In which case, the whole question is void. You don't really need to have fellowship with God because God doesn't exist anyway. Uh, And so, all of your life is is, is affected by that conclusion. Well, John has a very different message for us, and uh, we need to understand his prologue if we're going to understand the rest of his letter. You see, John is countering some opponents. Uh, of the people to whom he is writing to, who are proclaiming a different message uh, to what he has been proclaiming. Now in the first verse of his entire letter, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have looked upon, and our hands have touched, concerning the word of life. Uh, He then has a little kind of parenthesis in brackets where he expands upon that, the idea of the word of life. And and this life is is something that has been made manifest in history. It is revealed from the Father and made known to John. Uh, And we know that that is in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In him alone is eternal life. But the main verb of that little introduction uh, is in verse 3. Uh, John says that uh, this message, what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has touched, this he proclaims to the church. So, so the subject matter of his proclamation, he is now telling the church. And why is he telling the church? Well, he elaborates, so that you may have fellowship with us, or with the Father, and with, uh, sorry, you may have fellowship with uh, with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's purpose for writing is so that the people, uh, so that his recipients will have fellowship with God. And he's telling us that to have fellowship with God really means you have fellowship with Jesus Christ. But more than that, if you are to have fellowship with Jesus, you also need to be in fellowship with John. Now, this is important because the opponents of John were proclaiming a different Jesus. And so, when we say, okay, to have fellowship with God, you need to have fellowship with Jesus, we need to ask the question which Jesus do you proclaim? Is it the Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses? Is it the Jesus of Mormonism? Is it the Jesus of Roman Catholicism? Is it the Jesus of the health and wealth prosperity movement? Is it the Jesus of John's opponents? No. if you are to have fellowship with God, you need to have fellowship with Jesus, but you need to have fellowship with the right Jesus. You need to have fellowship with the real deal, the apostolic Jesus, the Jesus whom John, whom Paul, whom Peter, whom Mark proclaimed. And this is what John is writing to tell us. He's guarding the church against false Jesuses. Gee, if you know the end of the letter, anyone know how the end of 1 John, what's, what's the last line? It's very revealing, I think, for the entire letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's not detached from the letter. The whole letter, John is addressing the issue of a false Jesus. And right at the end, he is warning them don't go astray. Stick with the real thing the real Jesus. And this uh, informs the first command that we see in today's uh, passage. So look down with me at chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him. John is saying, keep going. The Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you, the Jesus whom I looked at, who I touched, who I proclaim to you, the Jesus whom you believed in at the start, you keep going in him. Don't turn to a counterfeit. Keep in him. And he gives us now two reasons for that. He gives us one major reason. So look down at verse 28. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John says, keep going because one day Jesus will appear. And when he appears, you you want to be those people who receive him with boldness and, and not shrink back from him in shame. Jesus says this himself, isn't it? He says in the Gospels that when he comes back, that there will be some people who are so ashamed that they call upon the mountains to cover them. Because they will be so afraid of the holiness of God. Now, I've got an illustration of this. I think we all know this feeling, right? When, when we've agreed to do something for someone uh, and we, we don't do it, uh, we really don't want to see that person Right? We, we're kind of a little bit ashamed because we know that actually the relationship is not right, we haven't done something. Um, when I was in my last year of my degree, I, I had exactly this situation. Uh, and this is really wonderful for me because this is the first time in my life that um, my final year of my degree is actually going to be useful, um, which is as an illustration. <laughs> my supervisor is not going to be very happy, but never mind. Um, I had to do a project uh, and I got two semesters into my project and then I had this realization um, that actually I wasn't really very smart, um, that I couldn't do the project and that I, even though I tried really, really hard, I was never gonna be able to do it because just I, I just didn't have the brain power um, and this was really embarrassing. Uh, and, and my supervisor um, was quite a scary man and I really didn't want to see him. Uh, I ignored meeting him I didn't want to show him any work Uh, and it got to such an extent that I didn't want to go into the college anymore because I was afraid I would meet him. Uh, I definitely didn't go to the engineering department because I would definitely meet him. Uh, Almost I was avoiding going down the high street in town because I knew he would cycle down there. Uh, And it got to the point where really I was kind of in my room and I was just getting slowly and slowly more afraid. Um, I really didn't want to see him. And perhaps that's what what we think about this passage—that, you know—what would my solution be? I, I, I would have had to have done my thesis really well, so that I would have been really proud, so I could then go to his room and knock on the door and give him my thesis and say, "Look, I've done it. Now I, I can be happy in your presence, rather than shrinking from you in fear, knowing that I might fail." Well, John's got something very, I think very different to satires. To okay. Now look at 28 and look at 29. 28. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, I think that, that we expect this, right? Okay, John is, has John is sent us, you don't want to be ashamed, therefore, do righteousness. Right, that, that makes sense, isn't it? I don't want to be ashamed of my supervisor, so I've got to do my thesis work. I don't want to be ashamed at the second coming, so what have I got to do? I've got to do righteousness. But look how John continues in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, and indeed the Lord is righteous, you know that everyone who does righteousness has been born of him. Do you read that? Don't want to be ashamed. Do righteousness. But those who do righteousness are those who have been born again. And so the the question really is, well, are we born again? Have we been born of God? What does it mean to be born again? How would we know that that has happened? Uh, How does does it even happen? Well, I think chapter 3, verse 1, it explains how this has happened. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. How is it that we are first counted as being born of God, as his children, and and therefore those who can be accounted as doing righteousness? Well, it's because God has first loved us. How did God love us? He gave his son. Because we are not sons by nature. In fact, by nature... We are not children of God, but we are children of wrath. We do things and and our attitude is is hostile to God and is uh, contrary to his will and rebellious against him. But the way that God has dealt with that is by sending his son so that in our place he can take on our flesh and suffer the penalty that we deserve so that at the last day we would not be condemned but that God can count us as righteous having forgiven us because the penalty has been paid in his son. Our sonship comes at the expense of God giving his son unto uh, condemnation and unto death. It is a magnificent love, it is a lavish love, it is a wonderful love. And it's the knowledge of this that precedes any sense of of what it means to be righteous. Righteousness for the Christian is something that is given to us in Christ. It is something that precedes our desire to do or to be righteousness. It's something that God does first for us. I don't know any of you here, but I wasn't present at my conception. Anyone here present at their conception? Thank heaven for small mercies, I think. Yes? Being born again has got nothing to do with our own will or our own desire. It is something that God has done first for us out of his abundant love and mercy. But hang on. This this doesn't quite fit with our knowledge of reality does it okay? uh, Christ has died uh, and we are now sons of God and if we're sons of God we're, we're supposed to be like God and, and God has loved us so surely things must be right but there are two things at least that, that shows that things aren't quite completely right uh, and the first one is that we know that we are still sinful we still struggle with sin hey, everyone here is sinful correct anyone want to argue with me No? Okay, if you think you're not sinful, uh, please could you fill in one of these blue cards? (laughs) That would be really great, okay? Fill in that blue card, leave your name, and you will have a pastoral chat within the hour. Okay, (laughs) that'd be fantastic. But we are all sinful, that's point one. Point two is that we live in a world that we know is not perfect. God has acted in love for us, but we still have a world that is hostile uh, and and against righteousness. So so how is this? How How can this be? Has God not completed his task? Has God not finished his work? Well, what does John say? Firstly, if we are children of God, then the hostility of the world should not surprise us. Verse one, for this reason the world does not know us because it does not know him. If you are born of God and, and, and he, is, he, is, uh, he is your loving heavenly father uh, and just as the world rejects him and hates him and just as the world hated Christ, as Jesus said it, if they hated me, then they will hate you also. If the eternal son of God was hated and resented by all men, his adopted children will also be hated. But the second is this. Why why do we still struggle with sin? Well, because the work of God has been initiated, but it has not yet reached its climax. Look at verse two. Beloved, we are now children of God. Okay, present reality doesn't look complete, but yet currently you here, if you are trusting in Christ, you are now a child of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. Because we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see, the the climax of our redemption isn't the here and now. We're still waiting. We know what God has done for us in Christ, but yet we know that Christ is coming again. And at his second coming, that work which he began in us will be completed. We are not perfect yet, but we will be perfect then at the Lord's appearing. If he is righteous, when he appears, we shall be conformed perfectly to his image, just as he is pure. And so I think this, this, this whole idea that the first appearing of Christ, knowing that he died for us, took our flesh, paid our penalty, that we may be forgiven, counted as sons of God, and counted as righteous, and knowing the second coming that he will come again, and that work will be completed, and we will be made perfectly uh, righteous and, and holy, understanding those two bookends will help us to understand the following verses and what it means to act and behave in the current age. Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him, the hope in Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope of sanctification, working out your righteousness, is based on what God has done, what God will do. Having that hope, knowing that you are born of God, and working it out. Uh, Peter says exactly the same thing in 1 Peter 1. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. You purify your soul not to earn God's merit, uh, not to get righteous with God, but because you've already been born again. God has acted first. Okay. Well, now come the tricky verses. Right, verses four to ten, and here we've got a really strong antithesis. The antithesis is is two things which are in contrast to one another, but they're they're held together. Um, Now, verses four to seven and verses eight to ten kind of parallel each other, and if you were to put them side by side, you kind of see that they run parallel. But I won't go into that too much. Uh, The main idea is that in these verses. um, John has got a really strong uh, couple of things to say about sin. So have a look at that. Um, Verse 4. Everyone who does sin also does lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 6. Everyone who abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has neither seen him or known him. The one who does righteousness is righteous. Verse 8, the one who does sin is of the devil. Verse 9, the one who is born of God does not sin. In fact, verse 9, he is unable to sin because he has been born of God. Well, that's a bit of a contrast with what John had been saying in chapter 1. If we remember what John said in chapter 1, If we say we have no sin, it's not that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. there are ways that people in history have tried to get around this particular problem, because it seems as though there's, there's a real contradiction here. On the one hand, John is saying that uh, Christians cannot sin, uh, it is impossible for them to sin, uh, anyone who abides in Christ cannot sin. And yet, in chapter 1, he has said, if you say you have no sin, then you're lying. What are the ways that we've tried to get around this? Well, some, some of the ways, and I think what the ESV has done, and historically it's a very common interpretation, is to say, in chapter three, John is talking about a habitual sin, sin that you keep on doing, right? If, if you keep on going in sin, then you don't have righteousness in you. Well, unfortunately, the same words are used in chapter one and chapter three. So it doesn't seem very likely. Um, sometimes people look at the tenses and and try to say well the tenses are different and and so it must be a different meaning well again that doesn't seem likely either I think what John is doing is is what he's doing is he's presenting two truths that are really strong that that are very clearly kind of have have some apparent contradiction because both are true and we need to understand both if if we're going to understand how to respond to Christ and his gospel we actually do this all the time Okay, I'll illustrate how. I will use Adam. Okay, Adam. Hello. You and I, okay, you and I, we have a love-hate relationship. <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. Okay, well I don't love hate you. <laughs> okay, now if I say to uh, Adam, I have a love-hate relationship with I'm not saying that I am ambivalent to Adam. That make sense? It's not that I take one and I take the other and I kind of shake them down and marry them together and if I've got a little bit of love and a little bit of hate if I put them together I've kind of got something in the middle which is ambivalence. That's, that's not what we mean by that at all. It's, it, there's a different meaning when we say we've got a love-hate relationship. It's kind of like uh, in Charles Dickens' novel, right? He, he begins in the tale of two cities by saying it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of prosperity. It was the age of poverty. It was the age of whatever ice, and it was the age of fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two like, things which are totally opposite, and yet he puts them together. Um, because what's he not saying? He's not saying, "Well, um, it was the best times. It was the worst times." Actually, as times go, it was very yeah, you know, it's kind of in the middle. You know, best, worst, like in the middle. Uh, it was age of prosperity, age of poverty Well actually it was a pay, uh, age of kind of economic um, Kind of middle of the roadness No he's not saying that uh, He's putting two things contradictory together Because they mean something when they're held uh, side by side uh, And I think that's, that's what we've got to see here Sin Any sin Habitual Small or great Is fundamentally a rejection of our identity in Christ. It is fundamentally an, a rejection, a contradiction of our identity in Christ. And we shouldn't try to tone down the language here to make it fit together. John is saying strong things about sin, and we need to listen. Now, there are two purposes, and they're both uh, matched uh, according to Christ's appearing. So in verses 4 to 7, I said it kind of runs parallel. I look at verse 5. Uh, Christ's appearing. You know that Christ appeared in order to take away sin. Right? Now look in, in verses 8 to 10. Okay, verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God appeared in order to Destroy the works of the devil, of Satan. So, looking at Jesus' appearing, why did he come in the first place? Well, it is to deal with, to take away sin, one. Two, it is to destroy the work of Satan. How does that affect the way that we deal with our sin? Firstly, if we know and we understand the true gospel, the gospel which John proclaims, the gospel that declares the holiness of God, that declares the severity of sin, that declares that Jesus had to come and suffer and die as the righteous one in our place, then it is ridiculous to keep on sinning. Jesus came to take the penalty of our sin, not so that we can continue in it. He came to liberate us from sin fully, finally, perfectly. We don't experience it now in its completeness but that was the purpose of his coming. Our sin represents our failure to recognize and to appreciate why the Son of God took on our flesh and suffered and died as a slave. The second is that Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. Satan who had, from the beginning, been a liar, who had pulled our first parents into rebellion against God and into sin and into captivity. Well, if we are still sinning, then what we are doing is is we are really declaring an allegiance with Satan. That is functionally what we are doing. Because in in the moral ground, there is no middle. Okay? It's not like... There's there's really good and there's really evil and we can occupy some kind of middle terrain, some no man's land. No, 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 no. Sin is fundamentally obedience and allegiance to God or opposition to him in allegiance to Satan. And so when we sin, when we reject God, what we're really doing is we're doing something that is totally unimaginable for a child of God, which is to ally ourselves with his enemy. It's absolutely reprehensible and horrible when we really think about it. Sin is a radical contradiction of the gospel. Now, we need to hold this together, isn't it, with what John has said before because we know that we sin. That is is who we are. We still have our our old man, our old nature. And so we're gonna continue to live lives as lustful and bickering and and arguing and uh, envious and all those horrible things that that are so disgusting that Jesus had to come to save us. Uh, And we need to bear in mind what John says in chapter two, verse one, because both of his emphases are here. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is writing so that we don't sin. Be very clear on that point. He's writing so that we would not sin, that we would not reject God, that we would not live in constant hostility to him. He takes sin really seriously. It doesn't matter the fact that we are still in our old nature and we still struggle with sin. John says, don't do it. God is a holy God. Keep yourselves from sin. But John is also pragmatic, he knows that as we struggle with sin, it's, when we fall into it, we, we don't say to ourselves, now I've fallen afoul of God's righteousness, what I need to do is, I need to, I need to work my way up, I need to try and do better, I need to pray more, I need to read my Bible more, I need to do this more, because then I can attain back to his righteousness. And the Gospel says no. Just as the Gospel says that sin is an abhorrence, the Gospel says you cannot attain righteousness. If you are to have righteousness, it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have been struggling with sin, with persistent sin, if it is sin that has been burdening you for many, many years, maybe even decades, do not believe the ancient lie that you are beyond God's forgiveness and mercy. That is not true. If you come to faith in Christ, you have the full confidence that you are forgiven and that you can be right with God. Not on your own merit, but because of what God has done for you. But yet, brothers and sisters, let us be ruthless with our sin. Acknowledging that why Jesus came to save us and its severity, let us keep firmly convicted to keep ourselves from it. So, I want to have a look. There, there are a couple of false gospels, false ways of, I think, in a way of interpreting these passages, and I'll go through a couple of them. John is not referring to special sins. Okay? It is not the, uh, the kind of Roman Catholic-y idea of There are uh, venial sins and mortal sins, right? Uh, A distinction between those sins which are serious and those sins which are not serious. No. That's false. Sin is sin. It's a rejection of God. Uh, and, And so John here is not talking about that. He's saying, don't reject God. Don't align yourself with Satan in any way, however big or small you might think it is. Don't do it. John is not referring to a special class of Christian. It's not those who abide in Christ in some special spiritual kind of way who, who are the really good Christians, you know, the, the ones who've done all of the um, TNT modules, But right? those kind of guys, right? Um, the, the guys who are extra special super spiritual and like the, the Gospel Coalition is their homepage, right? <laughs> John's not talking about that. All Christians are included in here. If you are in Christ, if you've been born again, the standard applies to you. Be holy for the Lord is holy. It's not a special subset. Oh, I like this one. It's not just your old nature. Right? You know how, how Paul talks about our old man. Right? Old man, new man. Old man is in Adam, it's sinful. New man is in Christ, righteous. Now... That could mean that what John is saying is that it's impossible for Christians to sin because what you're looking at is you look at the new man. Don't look at the old man. He's over there. Any sins that happen, it's him. Not, not new man. New man is very good. Old man, very, very bad. The problem is, these two natures are part of the same person. Right? So when I sin, I can't say, well, it wasn't me, Gov. It was my old man. <laughs> Okay, it's very difficult, actually, because in English, old man means father. So when I say it's my old man, it means I'm referring (laughs) to my dad. Never mind. Um, I can't say that. I sinned. It wasn't my old nature. Me. I did it. And so that's not a valid excuse, either. It can't be the case, well, John's talking about your new man, and he's just randomly talking about that with no implication, because your new man is your new man, and you'll always be home because you're your new man. No, John's telling you this, so you will not sin. Right? I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. So that, that, doesn't, that, that makes no sense. And lastly, it's not just, and, and this is where I, I take issue with the ESV. Um, it is not just habitual sin, uh, recurring sin. Um, uh, what's another word for it? Uh, repeated sin. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Sin that I'm always walking in. John's not just referring to that. It's nice to think that. Because when we think that. It kind of makes sense. We can join chapters 1 and chapter
1: 3 together. Right? It makes it nice.
0: And it flows. But John is not saying that. All sin is sin. Sin that we repeatedly walk in. Is very serious. Very serious. It, it destroys our, our hope. It destroys our joy. Um, it it. It has a hugely debilitating effect on our lives as Christians. Uh, And so if, if that is you, please tell someone. Tell someone on the pastoral team or tell a friend that you trust. Don't be burdened with it anymore. It's really serious. But don't think that John is just talking about habitual sin. John is expressing God's hatred for all of our sins. From the small, to the great, to the one-off, to the regular. God hates it all. And so we need to take it very seriously. We can't think that the little thing that we think in our heart every so often. Or that little thing that that we do when no one's watching, but it's only once every six months. uh, Or the fact that we've been fighting pornography for five years, but... Uh, it's been okay, but I had that one lapse last Friday, and, but, but it doesn't matter because that's once every so often. Uh, the fact that um, I was backbiting someone else, but uh, you know, hey, he was really annoying me that time, and I don't, not usually like that. No, sin is sin, and God hates it all. Now, brothers and sisters, as much as those are hard things to say, we need to always be reminded of that gospel. That gospel that holds out to us, that says to us, we're not righteous by our nature, but we are righteous through faith in the Son of God. But as we walk in our Christian life, we we do have hope and we do have a joy that that comes with following our Lord and seeing the fruit of his work by his Spirit in our lives. That should be great joy to us. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, as we we walk... As Christians, as we, as we keep repenting and turning back and saying sorry to God and asking for his help and acknowledging that we're not righteous but that we need Jesus and we need to keep purifying ourselves as he is pure, then eventually as we look back over one year and over 10 years and over 20 years, we should see the work of God in our lives conforming him to the likeness of his son. And that should be a matter of great joy to us. Just as the bad tree cannot bear good fruit, the good tree will bear good fruit. And this should spur us on and keep us going, but also act as a warning to us if we do see patterns of persistence. Notice that it is not the fruit, it's not the, the deeds that make you righteous, it is being born of God, it is still God's work first, but God's work will definitely show itself in how we behave. Now, imagine this. Okay. We've got a very good illustration of this, right? Our parentage, our, be- our behavior reveals our parentage. Okay, I'm like my father. Okay, Michelle will testify to this. It's really annoying, okay? Imagine uh, Mr. Nichols is about to have a baby. Yes? My wife. Yeah, I mean your wife. Wife is about to have a baby. <laughs> have a baby. Uh, the Reverend Phillips... His wife has also just had a baby. Now, they're both kind of similar-looking-ish chaps. They're both called Tim. Imagine that their wives were both giving birth at the same time in the hospital, uh, in the same ward, and they both have children. Now they come, uh, and there's confusion in the hospital. We don't know which one it is. Is this one baby Nichols, or is this one baby Phillips? (sighs) No, we don't know. Well, sorry. After about... After about five years, 10 years, 20 years, I think we might just be able to see the signs and determine who is who, right? Now, if there is one particular baby who who does things which are similar to to Tim Nichols, I'm not gonna tell you what they are, okay? Then you could could say that that baby belongs to Tim. And and the one who does things similar to, to Tim Phillips, okay? You might have a voracious appetite or something like that. You, you know that belongs to Tim Phillips. Okay? And so just as if we continue to walk in righteousness, we have the greater hope that yes, indeed, we have been born of God through the gospel. When we persist in sin, it ruins that assurance that we have. And so sin is not only serious because it is fundamentally a contradiction of the gospel and what God has done, but it is also so damaging pastorality for us. It ruins the joy, the assurance, the confidence that we should have that God has so loved us that he sent his son to die for us and that we have been born again of him. Brothers and sisters, do not persist in sin and do not rob yourself of that joy. So in conclusion... To to have fellowship with God is to have fellowship with the God whom John proclaims, and the God whom John proclaims is the God of absolute purity and holiness, the God who is light. And if we have fellowship with that God, it's only through the gospel of his son being born again. But that gospel tells us that God is, is completely opposed to sin. Sin is unacceptable. It's a direct opposition to his law. It is allegiance with Satan. And it is fundamentally a contradiction of our status as God's beloved children. Let us keep ourselves from sin. But let us rejoice in the God who has given us new birth. And the full assurance that what he has started in us, that seed that he has given us through his son. Will one day be brought to absolute perfection and completeness at his coming that we will be made perfectly and purely righteous before him. And those who have that hope will purify themselves just as our Lord is pure. Let's pray. A loving Father, We give you thanks that we can call you as our Father, and that that is not just an arbitrary title, but we are indeed your children. Lord, that we are not children by our nature, for by nature we are children of your wrath, but we are your children through adoption, that you have caused us to be born again that you have paid for our sin through the death of your son and you have granted us new life in him. That just as uh, you sent him to deal with sin and to destroy the works of Satan, so too for us that you have uh, delivered us from bondage to sin and captivity to Satan and that we will see that in full perfection at his coming again. And Father, we pray that you would grant us to see this hope uh, and that seeing what Christ has done and seeing... Uh, that that completion before us that we would purify ourselves as he is pure our Lord and our God help us to hate and oppose sin to see it as antithetical and a contrast and a contradiction to our very identity as children in in Christ and Lord we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to say no to our sinful passions uh, to put to death those things that are evil within us and to live unto righteousness in you. Guard us from the temptation, from thinking that we can be righteous on our own account, but always that when we sin, we need to turn to you in repentance and faith, knowing that you have provided an advocate for us. And grant us, merciful Father, to persevere in this life, pursuing holiness in all that we do, that we may attain to that blessed glory uh, at your coming again, uh, uh, your Son's coming again. And we pray these things, uh, loving Father, for your namesake, sake, amen.